Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the China History Podcast. Laszlo Montgomery here, bringing you part one in what is well, possibly shaping up to be one of the longest series ever in the history of the CHP. Both long and complicated. I don't know how many times this subject has been requested going back to 2010, but the drumbeat has been louder than usual these past few months. And after loyal listener and Patreon supporter Lee Poon's urging to get it done, I decided to stop procrastinating. And you too, you can head over to Patreon.com, just like Lee Poon, and look for me, Laszlo Montgomery, and the China History Podcast, and offer your support. For less than what it had cost you for a strawberry shake at McDonald's, you could help me keep this long-running podcast show alive, going on 10 years already. Thanks in advance. I'm not asking for much. And in return for becoming a CHP patron, you'll get access to all the juicy stories from my past that I'm already dishing up exclusively to the current elite group of Patreon subscribers. Well, talk about complicated. The warlord era involved more than a dozen cliques and a hundred warlords and their allies who dominated Chinese history from the year of Yuan Shikai's passing in 1916 to the end of the Northern Expedition in 1928 and into the commencement of the Nanjing Decade. We'll look at some of the history of the ill-fated Republic of China on the Chinese mainland, as well as all the marquee warlords. You've heard their names many times before in this CHP program and in the course of your own China history studies. Duan Qi Rei, Wu Pei Fu, Yan Xi Shan, Zhang Zuo Lin, Zhang Zhongchang, Feng Yuxiang, Cao Kun, Sun Chuanfang, Li Zongren, and so many others. And all these cliques or factions that battled each other, the Anhui clique, the, the Zhili clique, the Feng Tian clique, the Shanxi clique, the Guangxi clique, over the next several episodes, I'll sort everything out for you. There were the northern warlords, the southern warlords, those in the northwest and the southwest. There are going to be a heck of a lot of names, and I'm going to list the cast of characters mentioned in each episode in the show notes at the website. And for those of you who are often throwing up your hands and sighing from getting tripped up by all the Chinese names, I'll try and sort everything out for you so that you don't get overwhelmed and swept out to sea. We'll focus on no more than maybe 10 warlords and their respective cliques, but plenty more will be mentioned in the telling of this story. The eastern part of China will get more attention than in the western part. I'll mention the Ma family in the northwest. Some of you remember the Shibei San Ma episode, CHP 78, the warlord Ma clique of northwest China. Don't go looking for that. My family representatives threatened me with legal action, so I took it down. But I'll still mention them in this series, though, in a peripheral way. You know, you can't tell the story of the warlord era without also mentioning all the background events happening concurrently in Republican-era history from 1911 to 1949. But at no additional cost whatsoever, I'll provide you with as much background as necessary to tell the story of these warlord figures who didn't give the new post-Qing dynasty government a chance. And thanks to their antics, China remained a weak and disorganized pushover for the European imperialist powers and Japanese militarists to take full advantage of. 
China's political and military disarray allowed a lot of countries and companies to feast on China's self-inflicted misfortune. These warlords were responsible directly and indirectly for tens of millions of deaths from all the grocery list of reasons that result in famine, disease, and all manners of collateral damage to the populace from all the wars and battles fought. The patriotism of these warlords was always in question. Some were credited with being more patriotic than others, but their true loyalties were to their own selves, first and foremost. Money and power. That's what mattered to them. Building a new China to stand up to the foreign powers, all scrambling to get a piece of the beleaguered nation? Not high on the list. So, although there has always been this great interest in China's warlord past and a hunger to know about their stories and escapades, the truth is, they were the cause of much of the worst suffering the Chinese nation would see in modern times. They made it easy for Japan to come in and do all the terrible things they did to China and the Chinese people. The warlords made it near impossible for any semblance of a central government to emerge that could, you know, as we say in the beautiful country, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, and to promote the general welfare. In taking stock of every episode of the China History Podcast going back to 2010, I have to admit it's rather lopsided in terms of topics concerning PRC history versus ROC history. For all of you patiently waiting for some Republican-era Chinese history, you did not wait in vain. I'm going to try and make up for that in this series. The thing is... In China, during this warlord era of 1916 to 1928, when China was not unified, well, this wasn't anything new. Throughout the period of all the imperial dynasties, there were these times when China just fell apart. When the ancient Zhou dynasty kings lost control of the feudal lords and their various fiefdoms, it ushered in a long period known as the Spring and Autumn and Warring States eras. It was a bloody and violent time, but paradoxically, one of the most fruitful as far as the emergence of traditional Chinese culture was concerned. When the Eastern Han started crumbling and fell apart in 180, it ushered in the fabled Three Kingdoms period, 180 to 260. And pretty much from the Three Kingdoms to the Sui in 589, there was no single unified China. Well, 280, the Western Jin held it together for a few decades, not even that. And in between the fall of the Tang and founding of the Song was the Five Dynasties' Ten Kingdoms period. And besides these, there were a few other times as well in Chinese history when the country was divided up into contending states. But we remember the warlord era most of all, perhaps, because it was so relatively recent and much fresher in our consciousness. This all went down in China nearly a century ago, and we've been living with the consequences ever since. In any country's history, everyone, for better or for worse, citizens of each nation have been the beneficiaries or victims of their nation's history. You really have to think hard to find some benefit to the Chinese masses that came out of this warlord era. After all the research I've done the past weeks and months, 
Honestly, I couldn't find any. One irrefutable historical truth of China's warlord era was that it was a time of political, military, economic, and social chaos. There's no, but such and such was a positive result of all the national suffering. I mean, no good came of their antics. There was no unexpected or unintended positive result that inadvertently happened that brought peace, happiness, or prosperity to the masses. It was just one long, agonizing period of suffering and lost opportunities for China. So let's go back in time to see how the stage was set for this disastrous decade in Chinese history. These warlords just didn't appear out of nowhere. There was some historical background to their rise to power. China's so-called century of humiliation, the Bainian Guoqi, began with the Opium War. I've mentioned in past decades how the Manchu Qing dynasty sort of began to sputter sometime during the second half of the reign of the Qianlong Emperor, the longest reigning emperor in Chinese imperial history. Like a lot of leaders in world history, he lived too long. Many of his early achievements were sort of negated by the decisions made or not made when he kept on ruling after he was no longer at the top of his game. Where's a good place to start? The Taiping Rebellion is as good a place as any. Aside from everything else there is to say about this upheaval from 1850 to 1864 that led to something like 20 million deaths, it highlighted the abysmal state of affairs that existed in the Qing military. Besides this national cataclysm brought on by the Taiping rebels, the poor old Xianfeng Emperor, during the early years of his depressing reign, had to deal with the Nian and Miao rebellions and Second Opium War as well. When it was clear the Qing army wasn't going to be able to quash the Taiping rebels, they had to turn to what was, for all intents and purposes, a mercenary army to save China. Some were led by foreigners, but as far as the warlord era, all of the 20th century militarists who played any significant role in the warlord era owed their positions to the outcome of the Taiping Rebellion. The Xianfeng Emperor needed help, and he was left with no choice but to reach out to these provincial governors and have them act as his proxy to put an end to this national unrest. Two of the biggest names that rose to the fore were Zhang Guofan and Li Hongzhang. Those two men had their own armies. Zhang Guofan commanded the Xiang Army. Xiang is just an abbreviation for Hunan and Li Hongzhang controlled the Huai army of Anhui. These regional armies, like the Hunan and Huai armies, evolved from a kind of local militia called Yongying armies. And these local militias were filled with peasant soldiers gathered from the province. Besides these two more well-known armies, the Hunan and Huai armies, there were also others. This was the trend. By this time in Chinese history, 1850s, 1860s, the country had already fallen into the imperialist trap, and the Qing court was fated never to break free from that. And as a result of this, law and order broke down, and true power gravitated to the regional governments. Building an army from the ground up is one of those more complicated than it looks kind of things. So in the case of building an army, as with building an addition onto your home, it's easier to call in a subcontractor to manage the job for you. 
but unlike with building a new addition onto your home where you pay the contractor to do the work and he walks away, well, with these provincial armies, they stuck around. Pretty much from the year 1644, when they founded the Qing dynasty, the Manchu rulers were fighting a losing battle. They were Manchus, which today is no big deal, but back then... The majority Han Chinese population, from the get-go, bristled at having to be subservient to them. After 200 years, mid-19th century, nothing had changed. When times were good, during the first century of the Qing, everyone kept their mouth shut. But less than 20 years into the century of humiliation, the overwhelmingly non-Manchu portion of the population mostly concluded these guys did not have the mandate of heaven anymore and had to go. And so the Taiping rebels went down in defeat, 1864, and the armies hired to put an end to them stayed. When Tsang Guofan died in 1872, his protege, Li Hongzhang, 49 at the time, took over as the most powerful military strongman in China as well as the dynasty's go-to guy for any matters relating to foreigners. And the more Li Hongzhang got to know these foreigners, the greater he became convinced the foreigners and their weapons and technologies would be the key to China's defense and future survival. Li Hongzhang wasn't the only game in town. There were others as well who filled the vacuum left behind by the Qing ruler whose powers were greatly diminished the farther you got from Beijing. In 1871, the Beiyang Army had been established as one of the four modernized regional armies. This was the Qing Dynasty's great post-Taiping Rebellion hope for the future of their military. The Beiyang Army grew to become the biggest and most powerful of them all. They were funded by Li Hongzhang, who was able to use his position of authority to funnel as much money as needed to buy ships and armaments from the Europeans. Steamships, railroads, and telegraph service had arrived. Treaty ports weren't shanty towns anymore. The old days that moved no faster than the speed of a horse were gone forever. China's leaders were a dare in the headlights as soon as the 20th century approached. They had a lot of catching up to do, but in the meantime... Such a rich and economically vibrant country as China, with that one-of-a-kind population and market, was just sitting there waiting to be plundered. The primary reason for China's urgency to shape up or ship out with their military was the outcome of the 1894-1895 First Sino-Japanese War. I want to mention the Beiyang fleet and their role in this debacle for China. Under Li Hongzhang's leadership, the Beiyang fleet had grown, on paper anyway, to become one of the largest, most powerful navies in the world. But for a lot of reasons, poor training, and corruption, it looked a lot better than it actually was. By the time of the Sino-Japanese War, this was practically the only significant fighting force that was equipped to take on the much better armed and trained Japanese navy. Despite the investment and all the training from foreign officers. The Beiyang fleet got their asses kicked in this war. And from 1895 on, the Beiyang fleet was never able to make a comeback and was ultimately merged with China's other navy to the south. Some of you might recall the story about how money's 
earmarked for the Beiyang fleet, went instead to the building of the Empress Dowager's marble pleasure boat. So, 1895, the Japanese military creams China and humiliates them internationally. And this was followed by the disastrous Treaty of Shimonoseki. Thanks to this wake-up call, China was forced to go into hock to all these European banks who couldn't issue bonds and other types of debt fast enough. That war indemnity China had to pay Japan was oppressive, as indemnities forced under duress are wont to be. With Japan on a roll and eyeing China's northeast, the dynasty was forced to keep them in check by letting the Russians into Manchuria in greater numbers at great territorial cost. After the Treaty of Shimonoseki, at the highest levels of power, the rulers, political figures, and military men all said, okay, now we're serious. Let's finally stop talking about modernizing the military and really do it this time. This is where the rise of the Beiyang army comes in. The whole warlord era owes its existence to this former Huai army that had been created and built up by Li Hongzhang. I just mentioned with money he was able to raise in the provinces he controlled, Li Hongzhang built up the Beiyang army to become the most powerful and mighty of China's armies. Like the Beiyang fleet, the Beiyang army didn't perform all that well in the Sino-Japanese War. In fact, so poor was their joint performance. That pretty much spelled the end to Li Hongzhang's career. Now, before Li Hongzhang breathed his last in 1901, he got to be part of one more milestone in Chinese history, and this was the handling of the Boxer Protocol that ended the Boxer Rebellion. He unwisely chose the side of the Empress Dowager in this uprising against all foreigners in China that didn't end well for the Middle Kingdom. With Li's passing shortly thereafter, it was going to be left up to his protege and successor, Yuan Shikai, to be the next strong man in China. Yuan Shikai, he's sometimes called the first of the 20th century warlords. After the Boxer Rebellion ended on September 7, 1901, it began a new era of China embracing all the West could offer. I mean, that was useful to the country, that is. This was the period of self-strengthening. With the dynasty now on its last legs, it also represented one final opportunity for the foreign powers to take one last bite out of that rotten apple of a dynasty. Yuan Shikai had gotten his start working for Li Hongzhang. Yuan was, a, was an extremely energetic sort, very dependable, and always got the job done. He was a man who, though short in stature, was long on real talent. His big start came back in 1885 when he was sent by Li Hongzhang to Korea to represent China's interests there. The Japanese were just starting to ramp up in Asia, and they were competing with China for influence there. Yuan had been recalled back to China in 1894, right on the eve of the First Sino-Japanese War. And one of the upshots of China's humiliating defeat was the formation of the new army, the Xinjun. Yuan had been put in charge of this project, and the new army played a starring role in suppressing the boxers and protecting the besieged foreign powers in Beijing. What's important to know is that Yuan, through his control of this new army, 
allied himself with the Qing court. Before the Boxer Rebellion, Yuan Shikai had cozied up to the Emperor's Dowager, and he provided all the muscle needed to assist in putting an end to the Hundred Days Reform. That was in 1898. The Guangxu Emperor and his 40 decrees that sought to modernize the country, written by Kang Youwei, Liang Qichao, and others, were 40 decrees too many as far as the Empress Dowager was concerned. So Yuan Shikai and his new army played a role in making sure that never happened. And thanks to this act, Yuan endeared himself to the Qing court. Yuan Shikai kept using his energies and political skills to continue growing this army. And on June 25, 1902, it was renamed the Beiyang Army. Now, this wasn't the only army in China, not by a long shot. Every province had one. But Yuan's Beiyang Army was the most powerful. And since they were up in Beijing and were primarily responsible for keeping the Qing dynasty on life support, they had a rather unique role to play. Back then and all the way through the warlord era, whoever controlled Beijing controlled the government. And whoever controlled the government was first in line to deal with the foreign powers and get access to their foreign capital. After Li Hongzhang passed in 1901, Yuan Shikai in June 1902 replaced him as Viceroy of Jirli a post held previously by Zheng Guofan and then by Li Hongzhang, Zhirli. You'll hear that word a lot in this series. It's a name for a province set up in the Ming and Qing dynasties. Zhirli, translated, means directly subservient to. In today's China, I guess you could sort of compare Zhirli to the municipalities who are physically located inside a province but report directly to the central authorities rather than to the governor. In our time, Beijing, Tianjin, Shanghai, and Chongqing are four cities that don't have to answer to any provincial authority. Well, the same went with Zhirli province. They reported directly to the imperial government. Zhirli today comprises most of Hebei province, some of Henan, and a piece of Shandong. Beijing was physically located inside the Jirli region. That's why being the viceroy or governor general of Jirli was a very key post. The fate of the dynasty rested in the viceroy's hands. In Chinese, the position was called the Zongdu. There were eight viceroys in China. The term Beiyang was used to name the areas along China's coast that was comprised of portions of Jirli, Shandong, and the northeast. Beijing, where the Qing government was located, was the center of it all. And whoever held the position of Viceroy of Zhirli, they were in charge of everything. The position of Beiyang Tongshang Dachen was held by the Viceroy of Zhirli. And this post, known as the Minister of Beiyang, was also in charge of trade relations and matters concerning foreign affairs. Yuan Shikai, after Li Hongzhang's passing, wore all of these hats. He had already started to make a name for himself in Korea and had slowly built up his power, working in Li Hongzhang's shadow. Yuan had managed not to get too dirtied in the Sino-Japanese War and had made himself useful to the dynasty in the Hundred Days Reform, and now his biggest moment had arrived. 
1903, Yuan Shikai was in full military modernization mode. He built up six divisions of this new and improved Beiyang army. He employed Japanese and German military instructors and advisors to train officers. And later on, five of these officers being groomed would, in time, serve as either the president or premier of China. And a lot of the men who would play starring roles in the warlord era were just now being placed in various positions of power by Yuan Shikai. And he acted as a sort of godfather to the whole Beiyang organization. Believe it or not, there was a lot more going on in China than just the demise of Li Hongzhang and the rise of Yuan Shikai. I'm doing all I can to try not to wander too far from our central story. At the dawn of the 20th century, there's a whole slew of political figures all over China plotting for the downfall of the Manchu Qing dynasty, Sun Yat-sen included. He had formed his Tongmenghui, or United League, in 1905. And this party was the forerunner to the Guomindang, or KMT. In November of 1908, the Empress Dowager Cixi finally died. John King Fairbank wrote, quote, The Manchu leadership left behind by the Empress Dowager was thoroughly unmemorable. A child emperor, a venal regent, vainglorious young princes, a fet courtiers, all of them together, just smart enough to inhibit change but quite incapable of leading it, end quote. 1909, this Qing court, wary of his growing power, dismissed Yuan Shikai as a threat to their existence as a ruling dynasty. They were right about that. On Double Ten Day, 1911, another major milestone in Chinese history, the Wuchang Uprising, down in Hubei province, elements of the new army rebelled against the Qing. And once that happened... Within one and a half months, 15 provinces in China declared independence from the Qing. The Qing court looked to Yuan Shikai to get them out of this jam. But he knew the dynasty was decades past its sell-by date. And rather than keep them going, he cut a better deal with the revolutionaries trying to push China into the direction of a republic. And the rest is history. A history we will look at in the next installment of the CHP. I wanted to provide you with a short, to-the-point overview of the events that led up to this moment. This sad and frustrating period in Chinese history has been discussed more than a few times in past episodes. I skipped over quite a bit, but we'll come back again one day to zoom in on all the antics that went down all over China from the conclusion of the Taiping Rebellion to the end of the Qing Dynasty. Next episode, we'll pick up with the actual beginnings of the warlord era. In the beginning, as we saw, there was Zhang Guofan, and from Zhang Guofan came Li Hongzhang, and Li Hongzhang begat Yuan Shikai. And as we'll see next time, the first generation of warlords all got their start as part of Yuan Shikai's team. And this team was the entire Beiyang organization that in northern China, at least, controlled the military and, to a lesser extent, relations with the foreign imperialist powers. All for next episode. Once again, I humbly beg you to go over to patreon.com, plunk down three bucks a month, and you'll get the golden key that unlocks a safe full of stories from my checkered past, shilling for a few China manufacturers and getting their products placed in all the great retail emporiums of the USA. 
plus a whole lot more. Patreon.com. I'll have a link to my Patreon page in the show notes. Hey, go check out Jordan Schneider's China Econ Talk. Great podcast, very interesting guests, and a lot of insight into all kinds of business and tech news in China. They're part of the sub-China media empire. The Jewel in the Crown, of course, being the Seneca podcast, Jeremy Goldcorn, and Kaiser Guo's long-running program. Okay, me little beauties, that's all I got for y'alls this time. I don't know how many more episodes it's going to take to tell this story, but I do welcome you to come back next time and see how far we can go before the buzzer rings. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, Cali, down here in the Southland. What a nice summer I had. Sorry to see it go. Do come back again next time and join me and millions of others all over the planet for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.